let's open our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. We will be in some other places this morning as well, so you want to keep that open. Now, we went to Presbytery this uh, past uh, weekend, and at Presbytery we learned that Habakkuk is very popular uh, this fall. Uh, St. Pat's is preaching through Habakkuk, as I believe Second Prez is. Um, uh, St. Pat's is a good friend of ours in Collierville, Jim Holland, and um, these are both Second Second Prez downtown Memphis. So these are uh, churches who obviously followed our lead and knew that Habakkuk had a lot to say for today. Yeah, I don't think so. I think it was God's providence, of course. So Habakkuk chapter 1, if you're able, would you stand with me as we prepare to read the Word of God. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today and ask that our eyes would be open to who you are and why you act in the way that you do, that we might understand, and if not understand, Lord, that we might rest in the fact of your sovereign care in our lives, that we are never out of your grasp. And that even when we think that uh, the world has the upper hand and, and we are on the, the short end of the stick, you are in control. So as we read your word, open our eyes. Let us feast upon it today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I know you're going to say, didn't we read this last week? Well, we did, and we read it the week before. But this is the last week. We'll be on the first four verses, and we're going to deal with right towards the end, three and a half and four. So... Habakkuk chapter 1, this is an oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to your violence, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. And as you're being seated, you might as well turn over right now to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. So we all know that suffering is real. We've talked about this last week, this and, and the week before. And sometimes those who don't deserve to suffer, as far as we can tell, do suffer. And we can see that those that we think do deserve to suffer often don't suffer. So this morning we're going to delve into the first aspect of that issue. Why do the innocent suffer? Now, you're not going to like the answer, but I didn't say Habakkuk would be very popular. It's going to be difficult for us. But we do have to look into this and understand what the Lord is doing in the midst of our lives, whether it be in joy or in suffering. So we turn to Luke chapter 13 as an example of what we would say, why do the innocent suffer? Now, uh, let me read here the first uh, five verses here. And there are two instances of what appears to be the suffering of the innocent here in Scripture. Luke 13, 1. There were some present, and, and some, we don't know who the some are, but some at present, at the very time who told him, that would be Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, 
I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, classic Jesus here. Okay, They ask a question, and he doesn't really give them the answer that they're hoping to have. Uh, now, they may have um, hoped to receive an answer uh, to the question like, well, where was God when this happened? And, and maybe they expected to hear something like, uh, well, these were just anomalies. They don't happen usually. And it just is a, a bad luck. Okay, Jesus doesn't say bad luck. Um, or Jesus did not say, well, I don't really have an answer for why God lets those happen, but boy, I, I wasn't expecting that either. And, and when I get see him next time, I'm going to ask him about why he let that happen. I mean, isn't that the way we often work? We have our list. When I get there, I'm going to ask the Lord these questions, okay, because I didn't get a good answer here on earth. And when I get up there, first thing I do is I'm going to take my list right to the the, the holy place in heaven right before the Lord and I'm going to say Lord how dare you do this why did you do this now we kind of think that but frankly when we arrive in heaven those things won't matter because we'll see the face of Christ we'll see the glories of our heavenly father everything that went on here will no longer have a place in our hearts in our minds they ask, why did these things happen? Why did these people suffer? And the answer that Jesus gives is, unless you repent, you'll do the same. Well, that, that's not an answer. That doesn't give me why. It just says, if I don't repent, the same thing's going to happen to me. Yes, that is why. Now, remember Habakkuk and Job are describing what are termed as theodicies. The attempts to justify God's character in light of the actions that Habakkuk sees and Job sees around them. So when we think of suffering and why the innocent suffer in our world and in some of our lifetimes, we can think naturally back to the Holocaust. Why did that happen? Why did the Jews suffer to such an extent? Jewish scholars, rabbis, historians have attempted to come up with some explanation of what God was doing by allowing such suffering during the Holocaust. One individual, I'm going to quote Professor Fackenheim, who taught philosophy in Toronto, said, the very attempt to justify the Holocaust and explain it is obscene, is obscene. A professor who was a survivor of one of the camps argued that Jewish thought often expresses itself not in explanatory systems, but in conflicting explanations. The goal is not how to explain God, but how to live with him. How to live with him. Thus to find meaning in a holocaust, or indeed in the death of what may have been as many as 25 million people in German camps, Jews, gypsies, political prisoners, prisoners of war, forced laborers, etc. He said it is impossible. It just is impossible. But to seek a response is inescapable. Some have abandoned their faith, Jews, because they were unable to come to a conclusion that God even cared about them at the time. There were some synagogues after the Holocaust that actually held trials and put God on trial and found him guilty in their minds of terrible things. Elie Weissel 
who has written extensively on this, said God and good were momentarily absent from the world. That's why the innocent suffered at that time. But we'll come back to Luke and those things in just a minute, but we're going to continue here in Habakkuk. So I hope you kept your finger there. Um, So Habakkuk's problem in dealing with this question is not in what he knew about God, but in what he didn't know about God and what he didn't understand about God's character. He knew the Lord was holy and righteous. Scripture teaches us compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He also knew that God would would, uh, not leave the guilty unpunished, Again, from Exodus, he punishes the children and their children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. This, that kind of gives us an understanding of, of the holiness of God in his actions. He is gracious and he is righteous. Sometimes he allows sins to be forgiven, and, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished. So how the question for Habakkuk is how could this... Uh, holy and pure God leave the guilty in Judah and Jerusalem unpunished while he let the innocent, those who had remained faithful, so many of them had suffered. How could God continue to turn a deaf ear to the prophet's complaints? I mean, the, you know, how long, O oh Lord? That's, that's not a question, that's a complaint. That's a complaint that he puts before the Lord. Because it appears to Habakkuk, by God's inactivity, that he's allowing to prosper, the evil to prosper and the innocent to suffer. So how could God look on such injustice and and not rectify it, not change it, not fix it? The results of God's apparent abandonment of Judah are throughout society, and we see this. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. There's chaos. The law is, in a sense, found to be numb. There's no effect of the law anymore. Nobody cares. Um, Justice doesn't go forward. With the breakdown of justice, you got the breakdown of social order uh, and the, the, the lack of the essential elements just to continue to go. Chaos rules, anarchy rules. And then there are no rules if you have that. But remember, Jerusalem at this time, when Habakkuk is writing it, Jerusalem has not fallen to the Babylonians. Okay, That is still in the future, 25 years in the future. So we have to ask the question, well, who's doing all this evil? Who's doing all this injustice? You know who it is? It's the Jews doing it to the other Jews. They're getting the leg up on their kinsmen, on their countrymen, on their own friends, okay? It's not the Babylonians causing all this. It's the evil judges. It's the priests who are usurping their power and authority. It's the elders who aren't watching over. It's the shepherds who are not caring for the flock. In fact, they're using their positions to feather their own nest, so to speak. So Ezekiel is... Or Habakkuk, Ezekiel and Jeremiah tell us those things. Habakkuk is wondering, Lord, how can this happen? How can this go forward? The lack of justice means that the wicked have hemmed in, surrounded the righteous. What that means is there's no place for the righteous to turn for 
justice. There's no place in the court system for those who are not guilty but have been accused unjustly and found guilty unjustly to turn to. There's just no place, and, and so they're stuck. There's no way to escape their predicament. The law is basically perverted, bent out of shape, okay, and it's bent to serve those who were in authority. So back to Luke 13, and this is not the way we usually think about things. Lord, why the innocent suffer, okay? Perhaps the question is, why shouldn't God allow that tower to fall on those people? Well, I, I, I don't think I wanted to ask that question around, okay? Why shouldn't God let the innocent suffer? I mean, people, in fact, everybody, have been in, we have all been in utter rebellion to God since the moment of our conception. David says, I was what? Sinful in my mother's womb. From the moment of conception, sin has tainted us. And, and we do not seek God. No one seeks him. He comes after us. That's very clear in Scripture. So the correct question is not why there's so much suffering in the world. The correct question is, why is there so little suffering in the world? Now, you're saying, well, I see a lot of suffering, Rand. And you're saying this is a little suffering? When we understand our sinfulness, when we understand the real problem in our hearts and in our lives, what does God owe us? He doesn't owe us anything, okay? He gives us these things in grace. He gives us our salvation. He protects us because he is gracious to us. He is patient. He is patient. We learned that last week. That's why these things continue. Why do we continue to suffer? Because God is patient until what? The full number come into the kingdom. We've looked at these two books before, and just in passing, remember the book by Rabbi Kushner, Why Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? That's the wrong question. John Gerstner had the question right in his book, The Problem of Pleasure, Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? That's the question we have to ask. Why does anything good happen to me? Because God is gracious. That's the answer. Well, what if I'm not a believer? Why does anything good happen to the believer? Well, the non-believer, because God is gracious. Because in his perfect plan and will, he is using that good which comes to the non-believer, that the non-believer thinks it is what is owed to him, that he has done it in his own, that it is luck, that it is fate, whatever it is, yet God is using that for his purposes to shape and to mold that non-believer, perhaps to bring him to the point of salvation. So once we've reached the point of understanding that we don't deserve any good things, But sometimes we get them. Then we can wrestle with the question and the purpose of suffering. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter has some answers for us. Okay, go back to Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. We're going to go to the fourth chapter first of 1 Peter. So I have three questions for us today dealing with suffering. So the first question is, do I deserve to suffer? Now, outside of of what we just talked about and the fact that, of course, we deserve to suffer because of our sin, but the question is, maybe my suffering is actually my fault, okay? Maybe I'm trying to pass it off as, well, I'm suffering because I'm a believer. I'm suffering because I'm righteous, and maybe you're just obnoxious, 
Okay, and that's why you're suffering. Maybe you just have a, a, a proud heart and that's why you're suffering. So Peter has a good explanation for us for the proper way to deal with suffering of the believer. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, so you know he's writing to believers. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So the first thing is, it's a fiery trial that has come upon you and its purpose is to test you. Okay, what did we learn last week? The refiner's fire, the fuller's soap. That's why it is there. That's why the Lord sometimes brings trials into our lives to scrape off the dross of our life, to, to scrape off the dross of our heart, to make sure that our attention is focused on him and has not wavered into sin so it's the first the fiery trial and this is the fiery trial of the believer it's to test you then he says don't think this is something strange okay this is to be expected in your life this is the way the christian life is so how should you respond rejoice all right when was the last time you had a fiery trial and said oh just thanking god i'm getting the stuffing beat out of me for being a christian I don't remember saying that, until long after when I had a chance to look back and see, oh, that's what you were doing. Couldn't you have told me then? He did. I just wasn't ready to to hear it. Okay? But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. Christ suffered, we're going to suffer. They hated him, they're going to hate us. It's just par for the course of being a Christian. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we may be suffering for our faith. So as I test, we may be suffering for our faith as a chance to reveal God's glory. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But, there's that word. But... He says here, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. But if it's your own fault, don't wear it as a badge of honor for being a Christian. If you're suffering because of your sin, if you're suffering because of your obnoxiousness, if you're suffering because of your inability to be compassionate with someone or kind to someone, or just because you say, well, I just don't have much patience, and so that's the way I treat everybody— that is not suffering for Christ. That is suffering because you're obnoxious. Okay? So you have to understand. And, and don't say to me, well, I just can't have patience. Uh, there is that fruit of the Spirit which every believer has. You can have patience. In fact, as a believer, you have patience. It just may be hidden. And you're like, I'm not, let, I'm not showing anybody I'm patient. No, no, no. There's no inherent glory in suffering for your own sin. There's no inherent glory in suffering because... You're unkind because you're obnoxious. The only inherent glory is suffering for the things of Christ. You were kind. You were compassionate. You were caring, and they slap you for it. You're suffering for the glories of Christ. Okay, um, Suffering as a Christian has its purpose. Suffering because of your own sin, well, that has a purpose too. That God may be shaping and molding you into a more Christ-like image. 
Sometimes suffering is the direct consequence of our own sin, and we have to admit it. Just say what it is. My fault. My fault. The second question here we have. Does God use suffering to judge his church? Well, the answer is yes. Okay? It's just on a bigger scale than individuals. Sometimes the Lord is using our suffering as, as I said, refining, purification. Sometimes for the church too. It might come upon a local body of believers. It might be a denomination. It might be large sections of the body of Christ throughout the globe because they have strayed into error. And God is bringing suffering upon them to get their attention. Okay, how do you train a mule? Bang him over the head with a two-by-four to get his attention. Sometimes God has to get our attention as a church, perhaps as a denomination, as a larger body of Christ. In, in this instance, in, in Habakkuk, remember that the Lord is using the, the suffering of his people through the Babylonians and their invasion and their taking off large portions into exile of the populace because they did not follow the Lord. They became idolatrous. They sought after hunks of stone and wood to, to, to worship and offered their children on the fires for Moloch. Sin had become so great, their idolatry so open, their wandering away from the Lord was so bad that the only way to get their attention was judgment. And that's what had come upon them. We still might ask, but Lord, isn't there some other way to make us into whom you want us to be? We look at others, and we look at other maybe other churches or other believers, and they've indulged in sin. They indulged in sin. Man, they're not their, their doctrine is terrible. Why do you look like, why do you bless them? Why do you, those things go on? The writers of Scripture never try to give God's intent behind every individual uh, instance of pain and suffering. Rather, just like Peter does, they call us to not spend too much time trying to figure out and analyze the purpose of, Instead, they call us to focus on how to respond to God in the midst of that. Okay, Lord, why am I suffering? That is not the prayer. The prayer is, God, how do I respond to what you are doing in my life in the midst of this suffering? What do you want me to do? How do I need to change in the midst of this? Turn a page back to chapter 2 of 1 Peter. How do we respond properly in our trials? Verse 21 of chapter 2 in 1 Peter. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Say, I have to suffer like Christ suffered? I mean, he didn't open his mouth. He was innocent and they killed him or they took him to the cross and he gave his life for us. How should we suffer? Christ suffered for others. It is hard to do so. This is not an easy thing that the Lord is calling us to, but his promises are there. He is always with us. He never abandons us. Even when we think we are alone in the midst of our pain and suffering, he is there. 
Our third question, turn to John chapter 9. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And John devotes an entire chapter to Jesus' interaction basically with one person. We know this one. We've been here many times. This is the man who was born blind. Born blind. He's never seen in his entire life. So this is the third question. Is your suffering for the glory of God? Chapter 9, verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is a common thought, okay? That it was all sickness was a result of sin. It was either a result of your sin or of your parents' sin. Perhaps your mother, we might say, oh, my mother smoked cigarettes and drank while I was in the womb, so I came out with these problems. I mean, that's a loose illustration of that. But what the disciples are asking is there must be a reason for his blindness that he could never see. So it must be, they say, either his sin or his parents. Well, if he's blind from birth, it had to be his parents' sin. So this is common. And we see that as people are afflicted for their sin throughout Scripture. Miriam uh, with leprosy in the Old Testament when she questioned uh, what God was doing with Moses and why you did that. The death of David and Bathsheba's first child. It was David's and Bathsheba's sin that resulted in the death of that child. It was a direct, a direct judgment upon David. But the disciples here are particularizing a general truth. Particularizing a general truth. That, yeah, sometimes sin causes suffering, but not all the time, okay? Not all the time. They had forgotten about Job, certainly, and the fact that an innocent man was suffering terribly. Now, the question is why? We get to verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. So the whole purpose of him being born blind was for this moment in time but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He was blind 20-some years, as far as we can tell. Went all through that, never having any understanding of why he was born blind. Perhaps he cursed God that he was born blind. We don't, we don't know. It's not laid out for us. Doesn't appear to be much of a believer, although his parents are afraid of, if they, if they say they talk to Jesus, they're afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue, so apparently they were pretty good uh, practitioners when it came to Judaism, but Jesus says, no, it's so God's glory might be displayed in his life. That's why he was stricken with blindness. Sometimes our suffering is so that God's glory can be displayed in that suffering. And, and you might think, well, Lord, can't you display your glory in some other fashion? Can't you display your glory in my blessing? Wouldn't that be great? Can't you display your glory in my perfect health? No. He has chosen very often to display his glory in our suffering. This man was born blind and spent 20-some years in that state just so he could meet Jesus and be healed. 
when we suffer, we have to trust that God knows what he is doing. Okay. Whether it is Habakkuk's cry, don't you know what God is doing in the midst of your suffering? Or the man born blind, he didn't know what the Lord was doing until we get to the end of the chapter. Then we see his faith in Christ is seen. God works in and through our pain. He works in and through our afflictions. The challenge for us is to say, not why are you doing this, Lord? How should I respond to what he is doing? That's the call for us. It's hard to endure suffering, but if we're willing to examine our suffering in light of who God is, in light of his promises, then and only then are we going to be able to see his purposes in our suffering. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these none of us want to suffer, but we're going to. And so often we get to that point where we're suffering and we're going, oh Lord, why did you allow this? How did I get here? Get me out of here as fast as you can. But that's not always your plan. Nor do you always tell us what you're going to do ahead of time. Nor do you always tell us until far after it has been remedied why we were facing those things. Why that season in our lives was so difficult. Lord, we know we've got our own sin and sometimes we suffer because of that. But help us to see when we as believers suffer for no apparent reason, disease, sickness, sorrow, what others may do that affect us, those that we love and the things that they face, and and we suffer vicariously, We we feel such connection to them and such pain in our hearts when they suffer, Lord, help us to see what you want us to do in the midst of that. How do we respond? For perhaps that's what the world needs to see. How a true believer responds to the work of a sovereign God who is in control of everything. The confidence in our lives that you will bring those things for our good and for your glory, even if you never demonstrate that in our lifetimes. The sorrows in our hearts for those that that we long to see come to Christ. The sorrows in our hearts for those who suffer. And perhaps it won't be till after we have seen you and stood before the throne of grace that your purposes are revealed to us. Until that time, Lord, you just call us to rest in this fact. We will suffer for the things of Christ. You will use them for our good and your glory. And for these things we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Everyone, let us conclude with a hymn.